Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. A reading this morning will come from 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. Hear God's word. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So near the end of last year as we were uh, getting the schedule ready for this year, for the, the preaching schedule, my suggestion for me was I was going to preach through the revised common lectionary. So for those that are not familiar with that, what that is is it's a three-year cycle of weekly scripture readings which contain a reading or a lection from from different parts of the Bible, like the Old Testament, the, the Psalms, the Gospels, and the Epistles. And because these, these readings are built around the church calendar, I thought it would be a nice addition to what Matt and Jason were doing as they're preaching through books of the Bible. And so, today's reading, today's epistle reading, you know, I'm not just trying to be controversial, it just happens that this is the epistle reading today, one of the toughest passages in the Bible. You know, we got spirits in prison, we got baptism now saves you, lots of fun stuff. And listen, I'm not going to lie, like there was a moment where I thought about doing something else, like last week, and then Larson gets up here and talks about flaking out. So I thought I'd better man up and, and do it, so here we go. First, let's begin with a little context. Who is Peter writing his letter to? Well, he tells us in chapter 1. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. You know, much ink is spilled by scholars trying to determine whether various letters in the New Testament are written to the Jewish Christians or the Gentile Christians. But the truth is, really, that it, it's not that important. Because when Paul, or in this case Peter, makes reference to Jewish history, the Gentile Christians have also adopted this history for themselves. You know, it's, it's much the same way that you and I can read the Bible 
and recognize that it's part of our story as well. We're included in that story, even if we're not Jews. Now, the elect exiles of the dispersion are primarily those Jews that we read about in the opening chapters of Acts, who first uh, converted to Christianity, and then, while under heavy persecution from men like Saul, were told to flee Jerusalem and go into the regions of Judea and Samaria, and then later, as those persecutions spread into those regions, they then fled into the Gentile areas. And in this case, we're talking about areas that are northwest of Jerusalem, heading in the direction of Europe. Of course, as the church spread geographically, it grew exponentially. And many Gentiles were converting to Christianity, not to mention the missionary efforts by the apostles into these areas as well. And so as the church grew, so did the persecution, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, which Peter makes reference to in this letter later in chapter 4. So the issue is not whether it's, a, it's to Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians, but it's that the church, made up of both Jew and Gentile, who now no longer identify as either of those things, but as followers of Christ, who refuse to live the life of a pagan or refuse to live the life of an old covenant Jew, and they are both being persecuted for it. They are all the elect exiles of the dispersion because the story of exile that is found in the Old Testament, whether we're talking about Egypt or Assyria or Babylon, it's, it's all their story. It is the Christian story. Which is why Peter then follows that up with this beautiful Trinitarian reminder of God's purposes for them when they're in that place of persecution. It's according to the foreknowledge or the forethought of God the Father. You know, he meant for them to be there. And it's in the sanctification of the Spirit. They are there and they are suffering so that they can be holy, so that they can be made saints. And this is happening because of the redemptive act of Jesus Christ. And this suffering is the background to our passage this morning. They have been called to share in the sufferings of Christ, who suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So first, let's consider a few things about suffering. You know, first in, in verse 17, so the, the verse that leads into our passage this morning, Peter says this, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And his point is that true suffering, the type of suffering that shares in the suffering of Jesus, is defined by its content. You don't get to say, that you are suffering if you are merely facing the consequences of your foolish choices or if you're doing bad things. So to use an extreme example, if you agree that abortion is wicked, and you should, but your response to this is to murder a doctor who performs abortions, and the consequences of your actions are that you are thrown into prison, this is not suffering. This is punishment. Likewise, if you are a harsh parent, 
with little grace for your children. And now as a result of this, you have rebellious children who do not respect you. This is not a cross that you are bearing. It is the consequences of your sin, and you should repent. So we don't get to turn our own sin into suffering. But second, the Bible says some really interesting things about what suffering actually is. Throughout this letter, in fact, Peter defines suffering as slander and as being reviled and as being maligned. In other words, we shouldn't simply think of true suffering as martyrdom. And now we, we do want to be mindful of the differences. There are brothers and sisters across the go- globe who are dying for their faith on a daily basis, and we ought to be praying for them regularly. You know, of course, this is not on the daily news, but Christians are dying for the faith in greater numbers now than in any time in history. But Peter, uh, Peter says true suffering is not qualified according to the loss of life. The Christians that Peter is writing to are suffering through slander, mockery, and hate speech. And he tells them that this is legitimate suffering. And this is true for today as well, right? Our, our culture derides Christian truth and Christian values, and almost every category of people group is untouchable except for one. We are lied about in the news and media, we are mocked in all forms of entertainment, and we are reviled by academia. And you know what the worst part of all this is? It's that we get upset and offended when it happens to us. We forget that we were promised suffering for the sake of Christ. Paul says in Philippians 1, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. We forget that if we share in the suffering of Christ, then we also share in the reason for his suffering that we might know God, that they might know God. Jesus embraced his suffering. He rejoiced in it. So did Paul. So did Peter. And so should we. In chapter 4, verse 13, Peter says, Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Now that is not to say that we ought to always lay down and take abuse. And it's not to say that there are not times that we need to defend the weak or protect ourselves or our family. But it does mean that we do need to stop whining about how we are treated. And it does mean that we need to use this lower level of suffering, the slander, the hate, the ridicule, in order to prepare ourselves for the harder times that may come, the physical persecution, and perhaps even martyrdom. And who knows what may come. But God gives us suffering as a gift. It's a chance for us to build our muscles, to hone our skills for the kingdom. In verse 15, Peter says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. When our response to persecution is offense or vengeance or whining, 
we do not reveal to others the hope that is in us, and we fail to, sh to share in the sufferings of Jesus. And so here, you know, you thought that uh, baptism and spirits in prison was the tough part, right? Uh, well, actually understanding the context of suffering here really helps us to interpret these tough parts. And this is because if we share in Christ's suffering, then we share in everything else Peter tells us about Christ in this passage, which is bookended by these glorious truths of resurrection and dominion. In other words, if we share in Christ's death, we also share in his resurrection. And if we share in his resurrection, then we also share in his rule over angels, authorities, and powers. And the way this works with these tough passages is this. Under the umbrella of the mission, and the mission is of bringing men to God, Peter uses the case of Noah to explain what Jesus did in that situation to work salvation and judgment. And then he takes that explanation and applies it to the readers of his letter, which includes us as well. And so we first have to understand that Peter is not stringing together theological concepts to make a point. He's telling a story. So everything he's trying to convey to his audience must be understood in the example of Noah and the ark. And the reason I emphasize this is because when we get to tough passages like this one, it is very tempting to want to bring in all kinds of preconceptions extra-biblical references and flights of fancy that only muddy the waters. For instance, when we come to verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, many people jump to things like fallen angels, the Nephilim, the book of Enoch, and when that happens, you lose focus on what this passage is about, which makes phrases like, baptism now saves you, very difficult to understand. Now, my point is not to dismiss different viewpoints or to evade odd things in the Bible like Nephilim or the book of Enoch. Those things have their place. And I'm happy to have a discussion after church with anyone that wants to have it. I'll, I'll explain to you where you're wrong. Um, no. Well, I may be wrong. Okay. Uh, but, but uh, you know, and here's the other thing. Some of you have no idea what I was just talking about. And so my exhortation to you is please do not Google until after the service, okay? But my point, though, is to stay focused on what Peter is telling us in this passage and getting the analogy that he is making with reference to Noah's ark and our identity in Christ. And so, again, the analogy is Noah and the ark, and that story is being compared to the church's suffering at the hands of wicked men. And there are a few implications from this that Peter is highlighting. So first, in the same way that the ark was salvation for Noah and his family, Jesus Christ is salvation for us. He is our ark. Now the point is not to make a comparison of the degrees of wickedness between the, the time of Noah and then the time of Peter's time or even the world of our time. Though there are some comparisons to be had, for sure. The main point, the reference point, though, is that the ark 
Christ is the touchstone for all people. In Noah's time, you were either in the ark or you were outside the ark. Those were the only two options. The same is true today. You are either in Christ or you are outside of Christ. You are either saved or you are not saved. There is no neutrality. Now, Noah was not, just cho- was not chosen to just believe. You know, in other words, what I'm saying is Noah and his family were not swimming in the floodwaters like everyone else. And, and the only difference was that Noah and his family stayed above water because they had more faith than them. Now, Noah was given a task. He was told to build something, an ark. And the point is this, belief in Christ is a part of the equation, but it doesn't stop there. You have to be in the church. If Christ is the ark that saves us, then the gopher wood and the pitch that built the ark, the tangible items of which this ark was constructed, that is the church. And the church is many things, but at the very least, it is the four things that we've recently preached on in January. It's corporate worship. It's community, it's Catholicity, it's keeping your children. The church is the mechanism that God gave us in order to make us into a glorious bride for his son. It is where he matures us, he disciplines us, he enriches us, he instructs us, and he equips us. If you think that you can be a solo Christian, just you and your Bible, doing things your way, then you are on the road to being outside the ark. And this picture of the ark then also helps us to understand what baptism is. Now, baptism is many things. And so our our understanding of baptism should not just be simply based on this passage. We do not want to proof text our way into our doctrinal or theological beliefs. But in this scenario that Peter's describing, the waters of the flood... And of baptism represent judgment. In Genesis 7-11, we read, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened. The waters above and the waters below came together to destroy the earth. This is a decreation event. In Genesis 1, we read that on the second day of creation, God made the expanse, and he separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven. And this word heaven simply means sky. So in other words, the sky separates these two bodies of water, And in the flood, these two waters come back together to destroy the earth. And so tying all this together, here is how Peter is portraying baptism. There are waters above and below that will destroy you unless you are in the ark. He says baptism corresponds to this, which seems weird because we tend to think of baptism as this wonderful, glorious moment that we celebrate which is, it absolutely is. So why connect baptism to such an awful event like the flood? 
Well, it's because the waters of baptism are a symbol of death. The waters below are called the deep. In Genesis 1, they are formless and void, covered in darkness. These waters represent godlessness. It was out of these dark waters that God brought forth the land. It was out of the seas of wickedness that God called Noah. It was out of the depths of death that God saves his people in baptism. But the water also comes from above. The windows of heaven were opened, and a flood of judgment rained down on the world. Yes, God's baptismal waters wash us clean. They anoint us to priesthood, and they give us a new identity, but they also bring judgment. The waters of baptism are a reminder to us, the baptized, that apart from Christ, we have no hope. If we do not remain in the ark, we will die. Regardless of how we are baptized, whether sprinkled or immersed, we must remember both aspects. This is actually why many scholars believe that baptism in the Bible consisted of both, of a person standing in a body of water while water was poured on top of him. Water's above, water's below. In the story of the flood, we see a picture of God's gracious provision for his people. We see a man and his family saved from the waters of destruction because this man was faithful to God's word and trusted in his promises. You know, we're not exactly sure of how long it took Noah to build the ark, but some scholars say that based on Genesis 6-3, it took 120 years. And if this is true, that's a long time to stand up against the slanders, insults, and hatred of the world. And perhaps this is one reason why Peter emphasizes that there were eight persons on the ark. In the same way that this young church that Peter's writing to is surrounded by countless persecutors, so Noah and his family faced overwhelming opposition. They were eight people amidst the whole world, and yet they trusted in God and pressed on. But I think Peter is also making another point. When Noah found favor in the eyes of God, he and his family, all eight of them, were saved. And this is why the ark is such a beautiful picture of salvation, because it is a stronghold, a place of refuge. Salvation is not simply an intellectual endeavor. The church is not just made up of those who get it. It is a place for the weak, for the helpless, and for the needy. As I said before, there is no neutrality in this world. You are either in Christ or you are against Christ. You are either in the ark, or you are outside in the flood. And that flood of debauchery hates life. We bring our children into the ark because they hate our children. Abortion, transgender mutilation, homosexuality, euthanasia. If there is no neutrality then why would we leave them out there waiting for them to get it? They belong with us in the church, safe in the strong arms of our Savior. And so, whether you come in as an adult or as an infant, it is within these walls of this ark that we are saved. 
This is why Peter says that baptism is not just a removal of dirt from the body. It's not a bath. There's nothing magical about the water. Baptism is a change of identity, and it's a change of location. You are now in Christ. You are Christians. This is what, this is what we appeal to when we repent, as we did earlier, and we seek forgiveness from God. It is what we appeal to when we endure suffering. It is what we appeal to when we approach the throne of God in worship. Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God. And because he has dominion over angels, authorities, and powers, we can rest assured that we will be forgiven, we will overcome, and we will be accepted by God. This is the power of the gospel. And this is why Peter tells us that Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison to proclaim the good news of his victory over death. Now Peter's focus is on those who were in the flood. Remember, he is comparing Noah's ark to baptism. And so he is referring specifically to every other person on the planet that did not obey God during that time those who died in the flood. But this prison is referring to Hades. It's, it's Sheol. It's the place of the dead. And in verse 19, it would seem that it is a prison full of wicked dead people. But that is not entirely the case. First, that word prison can be translated in a variety of ways, such as watchtower or a holding cell. And the point is that this place is not just a prison for the wicked, it is also a place where the faithful dead await release. For the wicked, sure, it is a prison. They are being held until the day of judgment. This is who Peter is referring to in this verse. But later in chapter 4, verse 6, Peter says that the gospel was preached even to those who are dead so that they might live in the spirit. Before Christ conquered death and ascended to the throne, Man could not go to heaven, whether righteous or evil, whether Noah or those who persecuted him. But this is how powerful the gospel is. It brings life and judgment to the really, really dead. When Jesus rose from the dead, he went and proclaimed victory to the dead, sealing the eternal fate of the wicked while bringing life to the faithful. Near the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Aslan takes the place of Edmund, offering himself as a sacrifice on his behalf. And hiding in the bushes, Lucy and Susan, Caleb, I was not going to cry until you said something earlier. <laughs> but hiding in the bushes, Lucy and Susan watch as the White Witch kills Aslan on the stone table, proclaiming victory the witch and her army begin their march to defeat the rest of Narnia. But the next day, when the girls approach the stone table, it is broken in half, and Aslan stands before them alive. And he tells them that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack, and death itself would start working backwards. Aslan then runs to the witch's castle where in the courtyard 
are the frozen bodies of every Narnian that has been turned to stone by the witch. And Aslan starts breathing on them, restoring them to life. And freed from their stone prisons, they join him in battle, defeating the white witch and her army. This is a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ's victory over death. It doesn't just secure life from that point forward. It secures life in the past. It is all-encompassing. And if the resurrection can bring life and judgment to those who had died thousands of years earlier, then it can surely secure the church in the midst of persecution and suffering. This is how baptism saves us. It places us in the ark. And it doesn't matter how long it rains or how high the waters get or how bleak it may seem to us. God will bring us through because we are united to his son and we have found favor in his eyes. When we face trials and overcome them through the power of the spirit, we testify to the truth of Christ's resurrection. So rejoice and be glad, for death is swallowed up in victory. O oh God, work in our hearts that day by day we might lay hold of the grace that we are given in Jesus Christ, and that day by day we might be formed more and more in his image. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.